0: Good evening. I don't think the people in the hall heard us. (laughs) No, they still didn't hear us, all right. (laughs) They don't understand the pressure you got on a timeline, do they? It's all good. I like fellowship or as Clint says fellowship fellowship is always good well good evening I'm glad everybody is here tonight I'm not gonna take a whole lot of time in introductions I want to give brother Kenny plenty of time to express himself but as I shared with you all last Wednesday I spoke to uh, brother Kenny several weeks ago and asked him if he'd like to share with us on a Wednesday night and uh, it's a good environment to, uh, to do that. And so he's going to share Psalm 22 with us, and uh, or as much of it as he can. Uh, and so you pray for him. And then, of course, when he is uh, finished, we'll have our prayer session tonight. Tonight is missions night, so we'll pray over our missionaries. And uh, we appreciate you being here, Brother Kenny. Come ahead.
1: All right, let's make sure this is on. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? All right. There we go. First off, let me see how excited I am about this. This is just a show of hands. Is this anyone else's favorite chapter in the Bible? Okay. This is my favorite chapter in the Bible. So hopefully by the end of this, you will understand why and you will agree with me. And I'm going to try not to think maybe this guy might be. Okay. Okay. So uh, what I would like to do is I would like to start by explaining something. We, did, if you guys didn't know, the Geneva Bible was the first Bible ever produced that had chapter and verse. And that was printed in 1560. So prior to 1560, there was no way for me to tell you what page to turn to in any document that relates to the Bible. So with that in mind, I would like for us to turn now with the convenience of chapter and verse to Matthew 3. 27 first, before we go to Psalm 22. I'm going to be reading verse 35, 39 through 43, and 45 and 46. I'll start there. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, "Thou that destroyest the temple and build it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross." Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, "He saved others; himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He is trusted in God; let him deliver him now. If he will have him." For he said, I am the son of God. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father. We thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together to break open your word and to learn the things that you would have us to know about what you have done, the, the things that you have done from the ages past that bring, come to us now. We ask that you would illumine our eyes, that you would help us to understand, that you would draw us closer to you, and that you would help us to be even more fervent in our sharing of this wonderful news. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. All right. I want you to imagine with me. It's, it's been dark for three hours. You start to get the feeling that maybe something's wrong. We got this guy up on the cross. Kind of feels like we might have made the wrong choice. There's complete and utter darkness. And all you hear is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, you're a good Jew, which means you study every day the scriptures. What that means is you know the scriptures line by line to the point that, If someone just mentions a scripture, let's say a a scroll of Isaiah, you already in your head know that chapter because that's all you do is study. Now imagine the effect when Jesus is on the cross and his words are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's start reading Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O oh, thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him. Seeing he delighted in him, but thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast out upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is no one to help. Many bulls have encompassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have encompassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be thou, be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. For thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all the seed of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied, and they shall praise the Lord that seek Him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before before Thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He is the governor among the nations. All they that be fat on the earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before Him, and none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. I wonder how many of you are glad we didn't have to stand for that. That was long. All right. I would love to suggest that people read this psalm and just ask them if it reminds them of anyone. I do this as apologetics. I say to people, Without sight unseen, read Psalm 22 and just see if your mind is conjured to anything. And almost universally, they say, well, that's clearly about Jesus. What they don't know, and what if any of you don't know, is that this was written by David. This is a Psalm of King David. And it was written 1,000 years before Jesus walked on the earth. I tried to get something to help you guys think about what that means. In the year, tw- the year 1022, the Battle of Svendax occurred in which the Byzantine army under the Emperor Basil II defeats the Georgians at Svendax or modern Turkey. King George I is forced to negotiate a peace treaty which ended the Byzantine-Georgian Wars. I don't know if that conjures to you guys how far out we're talking about, but that's like what I picture people with armor and swords and it's probably even further than that. Imagine if we found a letter from that time that described someone getting an email, checking Google, doing the things that we do every day. This is the equivalent of what David has done. David has described to the letter what crucifixion is, but that's not all. This was written 600 years before crucifixion was even a thing. They did not know what crucifixion was when David was alive. So he wrote this without understanding anything about what he was writing. So scholars agree that there's no event that has occurred in David's life that would explain why he wrote these things. So if we look at Acts two twenty nine and some of 30, and I'll read it to you. You don't have to go there. We see that men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. This is the important part. Therefore, being a prophet, what do we know about David? He was a prophet. He was a prophet because he wrote what was to come when Jesus was on the cross. This is the example of that understanding in Acts. With that in mind, now I'm going to read 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, in which Peter is speaking to us about what the prophets did. And he says, this is the NASB, because I don't, I don't have a King James, and I wrote it in here. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. I like to picture in my head the prophets writing, and they have no clue what they're writing. They're writing, and they don't know why. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. They did not know what they were writing. They didn't know why it was being written. But it was written to you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. So think about that. David is writing. Let's imagine someone comes in. Hey, what you written there? I got no clue. You look at it and it is very, very strongly worded. Let's look and see what it says. The psalm is divided into two parts. The first is a psalm of lament. That's verse 1 to verse 21. The second is eschatological, which means the end times, a suggestion of what is to occur. We will discuss the pivot point where it becomes a song of jubilation when we come to it. This is what I would like to read from the believer's Bible commentary, and this is, in my opinion, what sums up Psalm 22. Approach this psalm with the utmost solemnity and reverence, because you've probably never stood on holier ground before. You have come to Golgotha, where the good shepherd is giving his life for the sheep. For three hours, the earth has been enveloped in thick darkness, and now Emmanuel's orphaned cry echoes through the universe, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Here, Jesus has had the sins of the entire world placed upon him. And God has forsaken him because of the wrath and the judgment that is being poured out upon him. Our wrath, the wrath that was due us, that was placed upon him in our behalf because of God's love. Verse 2 continues, O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. Notice the use of the word night season. That, if you recall Matthew 27, 49, it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. This is the night season, the darkness of despair. Why is all of this necessary? Verse 3 continues, But thou art holy. O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. The truth is that the love of God demanded that the wages of sin be paid. God's love provided what holiness demanded. That sacrifice on the cross that this 1,000 years previously is describing. Here, Jesus is dying as a substitutionary sacrifice necessary to bridge the divide between God's holiness and our sinfulness. Chapter 4 says, Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and they were not confounded. You know, the important thing to take from this is God never broke a promise. They trusted, and he delivered. And what this is pointing to is that Christ was the truth to come. Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, was pointing to Christ. And in this reference to the Father's trusting in God, that trust was that a sacrifice worthy of the forgiveness of sins was going to come. This is that promise. God's never broken a promise And the fathers entrusted the provision and through faith of the one sacrifice to be delivered. Their faith was in this event. Their faith from time immorium moving forward was to what God was going to do to reconcile us in Genesis 3.15. This is my favorite part. Verse 6, I am a worm and no man. Reproach of men and despised of the people. Now, in in Jewish hermeneutics, which is the interpretation of Scripture, how we come to understand what Scripture means, there is a term called a remez. And a remez is a hidden message or a deeper meaning. It's a thing that is said that a lot more than what is said is said by the way it is said. And so it's said to be a treasure that is found below the surface of the words, much deeper than the original meaning. This interesting remez in Psalm 22:16 is the prophetic cross of Jesus. And In verse 6 it says I am a worm. Jesus certainly was a worm on the a man on the cross. So what did the psalmist mean when he said I am a worm? What's interesting the word that he used is not rima. If you speak Hebrew, you know rima would be the word you would use to say I'm a maggot. It would be I am the lowest of the low. Instead he says I am a tola. And Toloth is interesting because we see this show up again in Job Job chapter 25, 4 through 6. Let me read that to you right quick. Notice the very first question. How then can mankind be righteous with God? That's a very important question to think about. How can man be righteous with God? Job is writing before Jesus comes. How can anyone who is born of woman be pure? If even the moon has no brightness, and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that maggot, or rima, and the son of man, that worm, or toloth. That is what's in view here, the toloth. Now let me tell you a little something about the toloth. It's actually called the scarlet worm today, and it's a Middle Eastern animal that is really most frequently found in jerusalem the life cycle of the toloth is very interesting they discovered way back when that when you crush it up and you use it to make dye it is a very bright red blood looking dye it's the 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 dye that is used for the high priest garments it's the dye that is used for the tabernacle the outside covering of the tabernacle, and it's the dye that is used on the fabric on the Day of Atonement for the two goats. So this, is ve- this, this toloth is a very big part of the Old Testament. Now let me tell you about the life cycle of the toloth. When it's time to have babies, the mom toloth finds a tree. She submits herself to that tree, and she gives birth under her body, While creating a bright red large shell under which the babies feed upon her. The dye that's within her dyes her babies that same red color. And when it's time to be born, the babies burst forth from the mom who has expired, dying to bring life to her children. And the babies escape looking exactly like the mom did, or the mom's blood did. After roughly three days, plus or minus a day, that red shell turns white. And it flakes off. It's actually what they use to make shellac. It flakes off like snow. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your skins, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they will be like wool. This is Isaiah 1, 18. That's the toll off. So when... David writes, "I am not a worm." There's so much more than that worm. I am. Or I'm sorry. I'm not a man. I'm a worm. That worm is the toloth that dies for its babies. Verse seven: All they that see me laugh to scorn, laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, "He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him." Let him deliver him, seeing that he delighted in him. I'd like to read now from Mark 15, 29-32. Just remember to think of the crucifixion. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads. Can you imagine the head wag of the Jewish Pharisees? That, that you, you... I just see that bobblehead pivot. Saying, "Ah, oh, thou that destroyest the temple and build it in three days... Save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking said to themselves with the scribes, He saved others, but Himself He cannot save. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. This same scorn that was hurled at Jesus on the cross was written on paper a thousand years prior. Verse 9, But thou art... He that took me out of the womb, Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. Ten, I was cast out, cast upon Thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Verse nine marks an important turn. It goes from talking to the people in attendance at the crucifixion to now thoughts of the Father, thoughts of the original entry into the earth, thoughts of Jerusalem, thoughts of Bethlehem and Jerusalem. And I like to, when I look at it, I think about the provision that is spoken of. And I think about the magi that came, that gave warning to to Joseph and Mary of what Herod intended to do, that gave them the warning that Herod was coming to kill them, and gave them the very things that they needed, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, to escape to Egypt, to be free of Herod's hatred until they can return. Looking at these things, he's considering those all the things that have been done to bring to him to that point to be sacrificed on the cross. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. This is on my Bible, my travel Bible. This is my patch for one of my favorite verses. And it's because when we feel alone, we're not truly alone. No matter your worst day, when you're you're just sitting there and you're thinking, everybody is against me, nobody cares, God still cares. In this case, when Jesus says there is none to help, the Father has forsaken him. There truly is no one to help. So this admonition, there is no one to help, is graver than any thought that we might have that we don't have an ally because we always do. Verse 12, many bulls have encompassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths of the ravening and roaring lion. Now, this is entirely opinion. I can acknowledge that this is coming from extra sources, including the Ugarit and including the, the writings about the Rephaim. But there are lots of writers who will mention that Bashan has a strong spiritual connotation. That there is old writings about Bashan being a part of the gates that hell, that we that the gospel could not prevail against. And in this case, I believe that there's an unseen aspect to Jesus' crucifixion that involved things that we can't see. And that one of those things were the evil spirits who thought that from the very beginning, who inspired the killing of the firstborns all the ways that they tried to stop Jesus from coming and fulfilling the Proto-Evangelium, Jesus sees them now opening their mouths and growling at him, celebrating that this whole time what they've been trying to do is to kill Jesus, and they finally accomplished it. If it's not that, then it's the Jewish leaders. They're roaring lions. They're excited to kill him. There is a book called The Unseen Realm by Dr. Michael Heiser, I don't recommend everything that's in it, but it does have some very interesting Hebrew studies of Bashan. So if you have an interest in learning about Bashan, that would be my recommendation. 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. I will read now from John 19, verse 34. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. Now that is interesting because doctors have identified that during crucifixion, the shoulders are dislocated as the weight of the body pulls the arms down. And trust me, as someone who was on the, the fake cross a couple of months ago, it is ter- I was not even nailed to it, and it's terrible. And he was up there with his body weight pulling down. When you see my bones are out of joint, his shoulders were literally dislocated. This is an excerpt from the National Library of Medicine, if you can believe it. On the cross, the workload of the heart was greatly increased due to multiple factors, but primarily the increased effort necessary to breathe. This resulted in a rupture of the free wall of the heart, which caused Jesus to cry out in a loud voice and die. This cause of death is confirmed for us by the sword pierced to the side, which resulted in the flow of blood and water. That water came from the surrounding of his heart. In effect, that was a brief and legitimate post-mortem exam. That is what is written in the National Library of Medicine. Thus, the heart is like wax is a reference of the bursting of his heart and that he is poured out like water proved to be prophetic. John 19.28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. What scripture might be fulfilled? Verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. When your tongue cleaves to your jaws, it is because you thirst. Jesus said, I thirst, fulfilling another one of these prophecies directly. In the psalm here, the author has died. That's kind of why we think it's probably not David that it's talking about. It's not a light ailment. This is terminal. This is into the dust of death. I am dying. Again, nothing like this ever befell David, in spite of all the things that he went through. Verse 16, For dogs have encompassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Recall Matthew 15, verse 26. Jesus says, It is not right to give the children's food to the dogs. Dogs is a reference to Gentiles. The Romans specifically are the Gentiles that we're speaking of, and the idea of them enclosing him is is reminiscent of the Garden of Gethsemane as well as the crowd of crucifixion. They surrounded him constantly to keep him from escaping. And I want to point out that typically when they tried to surround him, he just walked from among them. He could have done that now, but he did not. The Masoretic text which is the authoritative Hebrew and Aramaic text of the 24 books of the Hebrew Bible, or Tanakh, in rabbinic Judaism, takes this verse and says, like a lion, my hands and feet. This is important because if you ever witness to, to Jewish people, people from Israel, they will point to this and say, oh, you say, you pierce my hands and my feet, and they'll say how that is proof that that's not what that's talking about. Has anyone seen a lion? you all know the primary attribute of a lion they have two big things in the front of their face that are pretty indicative of what they can do if they're at your hands and feet this is an example of where they take text and they twist them to try and keep them from meaning what they mean but it's very clear that if at your hands and feet there were lions you would have marks similar to what Jesus had so that's not legitimate in case anyone ever tries to suggest it to you verse 17 I may tell all my bones They look and stare upon me. In this verse, I prefer the NASB, which says, I can count all my bones. This conjures to me the idea of intimacy. They're staring at him. He can can count all his bones. To me, this points to the fact that he is naked and emaciated. He is on the cross. There's nothing keeping you from seeing any part of him. He can count every bone, and they stare at him. Suggesting the feeling of exposure and shame that is associated with this way of death. Verse 18. Read with me John 19, 23 and 24. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and made four parts to every soldier apart and also His coat. Now the coat was without a seam from shoulder to feet, woven from the top throughout, so they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted the raiment among them, and my vesture they did cast lots. This is Psalm 22, 18. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. 19 says, be But be thou not far from me, O Lord, my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. This is the last appeal to help. And in his appeal, the sword is representative of governmental power. This is speaking of the Romans and the power that they yield in capital punishment. And the dog is yet another reference to the Gentiles. Again, when David is writing this, imagine him writing about someone who is being circled and and ensnared by the Gentiles. That much is clear. The Romans are the Gentiles. Just to point two scriptures that make the case for the Gentile dogs. Matthew 7, 6 says, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs speaking of the Gentiles. And Matthew 15, 26 says, It is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. The good part about that is we know that her faith was enough and he forgave her anyway. It's all about faith. 21, Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I'm going to switch to the NASB here. And it says, save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. Those are two, this is where the psalm breaks in half. The first part is save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. I want to point out that wild oxen is something that we might not really understand. It's definitely harder to understand when it's pronounced unicorn, but in the reality, it's all rock. An auroch is referenced in Job 39 verse 9 through 12. Will the auroch be willing to serve you? Or will he spend the night at your feeding trough? Can you tie down the auroch in a furrow with ropes? Or will he plow the valleys after you? Will you trust him because his strength is great and leave your labor to him? Will you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it from your threshing floor? When we think about the auroch, and the horns of the Auroch specifically, God is using the Auroch as an example of something that cannot be controlled, something that is so stubborn and is so headstrong and is so strong that man cannot exercise dominion over it. In that, the Auroch actually was alive as recently as the 1600s, and it was said to be a bull whose shoulders were six feet high. Can you imagine a bull that shoulders are this high, it's a massive animal and this is what Jesus is referencing when he says from the horns of the wild oxen. This is how treacherous. If you think about staring down a bull that is that big, this is the amount of of hopelessness that exists. And also, in my opinion, when I look at it, I think of the fact that Jesus explains how headstrong the, that animal is in the face of the Jewish leaders, which this is pointing to, the lion's mouth and the wild bull. That is the Jewish leaders. They were so stubborn that they would not hear what was being said, just like, just like God saying, can you convince this Arak to live in your feeding trough for a day? It won't happen. That's what it's pointing to. The lion is the Jewish rulers and the reference to the auroch when considered with Job suggests considerable strength, peril, and stubbornness. The entire psalm here pivots from lament to jubilation. Between auroch and you answer me, the sufferings of the Lord Jesus are now forever past. His redeeming work has been finished. The cross has been exchanged for a crown 22 I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation will I praise thee this is a passage from the believers Bible commentary by this point in the psalm Christ has returned to the earth to reign as king the faithful remnant of the nation of Israel has entered the kingdom with all its millennial glories the Messiah of Israel is ready to testify to his Jewish brethren about the faithfulness of God in answering his prayers in the first part of the psalm. Now, Christ praises God in the midst of the congregation. The next three verses give the substance of what Christ will say to redeemed Israel in the future millennium day. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye, the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All ye, the seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his faith from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard, My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. Now in the last six verses of the psalm, there's a change of speaker. The Holy Spirit speaks, describing the idyllic conditions that will prevail during the peace and prosperity of the coming millennium. Verse 26. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek Him. Your heart shall live forever. This is a blessing to those who love the Lord. The Spirit pronounces this blessing. May your heart live forever. 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nation shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. All they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. The Lord himself will exercise dominion over the nations, and his power will be known to all from all ends of the earth. A seed shall serve Him, verse 30. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare His righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that He hath done this. Christ's fame will endure forever. This one event, Christ on the cross, has split time in half. There is only before and after the cross. B.C. and A.D. Forevermore Christ's righteousness will be declared. This psalm ends with the words that He has done it. This contains the exact same meaning as tetelestai, the Greek rendering of Jesus' cry on the cross, it is finished. Thus, This psalm begins and ends with words from Jesus in the crucifixion. How fitting. Thank you.